Noble Experiment by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 8, Extraterrestrials in Brady's Dreams. Coffee was late and getting to work on Monday morning. He had tried to read the post as he sat with Peg. The problem of Bill Brady had been plaguing him all day and night. He hadn't mentioned anything about this to Peg. He was all bottled up inside of him, but he was on the verge of making a decision. He looked down at the multitude of stories on Von Grunkel. The words rang familiar. A man from the depths of despair, one who had stuck to his guns because he knew he was right. The brilliant foreseer of the future, Olin Von Grunkel. The praise continued throughout the paper and all over the media. This is what Coffee weighed against what his friend had told him from Boise in the bizarre early morning phone call. What Brady had mentioned seemed insignificant and probably unprovable. Coffee was deep in thought as the telephone rang and Peg got up to answer. He snapped out of his thinking, ran by her, and lifted the receiver. Well, excuse me, Bob. She smiled as he picked it up. Hello, Bob Coffee. What the hell do you think you're doing? Asked Brady on the other end. Brady, where are you? Oh, where am I? I'm still alive. That's where I am. I don't understand, confessed Coffee. Oh, yeah? My motel room was just firebombed and shot up Saturday morning. We narrowly escaped. My God, they tailed you. No, Bob. There's no way they could have tailed me unless they were tipped off. Did you call the authorities? Well, I was on the verge of calling them, Bill. Then you haven't got the package. Package? What package? asked the colonel. You should have it today. It'll be at your house copies of the bills of lading for console trucking. Bill, I'm trying to figure out how they found you in Boise. I haven't even told Peg. Well, somebody knew, Bob. That's all I know. They could be tapping your phone right now. Look, you have to act once you get those copies. I'm a fugitive. I can't do anything, but you can. I'll have to look at the bills. Well, they'll give you a clear and concise record. Well, that's true, of course, said Coffee. I want something more substantial, something concrete. Then why don't you just go to Oregon? Bill, I'll be run out of town if you're wrong. You know that, don't you? How many times have you been wrong about Von Grunkel? Brady seemed incensed and didn't speak for some time. I'll be calling you back, Bob, in a few days. If you haven't acted by then, then I will. That's an automatic capture for you, Bill. Maybe, maybe not. I can make calls. Bye. Hey, Bill, Bill, called Coffee. He set down the telephone and turned to Peg at the table. He's in trouble again, isn't he? She asked. Yeah, he's in trouble, Peg. Big trouble, said Coffee as the telephone rang once again. Hello, is that you, Bill? This is Larry Stingler, Colonel. Oh, Larry, yes, yes, good morning, said Coffee. Just who did you think was calling? Asked Stingler. Oh, just a neighbor, Larry. Hey, I'm a little late here this morning. I should be in about ten. Right. I was just calling, Colonel, about my trip. What trip? To Washington State. It's been three months since that sighting up in Durham. When will you be back? Oh, I should be back probably Wednesday night. Have you discussed this with General Hunt? Hunt? Uh, yeah, of course. Met with him this morning. Well, I will need you back here by Thursday. We've got those congressional ceremonies for Von Gronkel. More planning still has to be done. 
When are you leaving? Will I see you at the office? I'm leaving about 10, sir. I doubt if you'll see me. Okay, Larry, then have a good time and stay out of trouble. Yes, sir. Goodbye. Goodbye, said Coffee as his wife came down the front hallway with a shipping envelope. Bob, the postman just... Let me see that, he said, grabbing it. I'm sorry, Peg. This is confidential. I've been waiting for it. Does it have to do with Bill Brady? Yes, he said as he walked down the hall and into the den, closing the doors behind him. He opened the package right away, hoping that his friend might have some credibility. Everything was there, just as Brady said it would be. Coffee read the documents very carefully, and he recognized the pattern. He had no proof, however, that the man killed in Indianapolis was indeed Harold Nolte, the truck driver from Consul. In fact, he wasn't even sure that a man was killed in Indianapolis. Could it be that Brady was so desperate that he would stick this whole scheme together just to fit his own means? He had known Brady well enough to at least give his ideas a hearing, but he was not going to risk his own career until he knew for sure. And the first step in that direction would be to do what Brady said and to travel to Junebug, Oregon. He would have to go on his own time and money to avoid being questioned by his superiors. Brady, he reasoned, could be given the benefit of the doubt, at least for the time being. First, he would have to get the time off from General Hunt. Coffee called the general's office immediately and, to his shock, found that Hunt had been on vacation for three days. He procured the number of a country store in a remote section of eastern Pennsylvania. It took several minutes until they got General Hunt to the telephone. Bob, why is everyone calling me this morning? I'm trying to get away from it all. General, I need some time off. I need you in the office. No, not until the end of the week, General. We just have to finish the final arrangements for Von Grunkel. Well, I'll be back by the end of the week. This vacation is doing me a world of good. General, did Sergeant Stingler call you this morning? That's what I meant. I was no more than a hundred yards on my way to the river after he called. Then you called. So he called no more than five minutes ago, said Coffey, as his thoughts began to gel with doubt. He told me that you ordered him to Washington State. You did, didn't you? Oh, yes, of course. I just talked to him myself, lied Coffey. Well, you take your time off. Just make sure both of you are back at your desks on Thursday morning. Yes, sir, thank you. And good luck fishing. If I ever get there, said Hunt as he hung up the telephone. Yes, goodbye, sir. Coffey was upset with Stingler and couldn't understand why the sergeant had lied. He thought about Stingler's overall personality and it suddenly came to him. Stingler was one of the three men in his office when he received the call from Lorna. Stingler could have very easily been listening in, thought Coffey, as it was the only time the Ponderosa Lodge had been mentioned. But that would link his aide, an aide who had always been remote to him personally, to Von Grunkel or the underworld. The more he thought about it, the more he doubted Stingler. Just minutes before, Stingler had demanded to know why he had answered the telephone asking for Bill. Coffee picked up the telephone and began to dial the various airlines inquiring about the passenger list. If Coffee had his doubts about Stingler, they were confirmed along with Stingler's reservation on Pan American Flight 267. The destination was not Washington State, but Portland, Oregon. He could see from his Atlas map that Portland was just 42 miles from Junebug. It's all beginning to make sense now, including Brady's photocopies. In a matter of minutes, Coffee changed into his golf clothes 
as he called them, a red baseball cap, a casual blue shirt, and white pants. He would be aboard an Air Force jet and arrive in Portland one half hour ahead of Stingler. From Portland, he had procured a shuttle flight to Appleton, five miles north of Junebug. He would wait at the airport and see if his aide would walk off the incoming shuttle flight. If Stingler was not aboard, Coffee planned to go to Junebug and snoop around the garage, the destination of the various shipments. As the jet lifted from the runway, he held his briefcase with the photocopies inside. He could not help thinking where Brady was and what his next move would be. Brady and Lorna sat on the bed of a pickup as it crossed the Bay Bridge from Oakland to San Francisco. The city loomed in front of them as they approached Treasure Island, midway across the bay from Oakland. Brady had plans to recover the time capsule, even though he had no idea how to get to Johnson's office on South Pasadena Boulevard. If money was waiting for them, he'd somehow get a forged passport. Lorna had argued about going with him, but he was set against it. It had touched off bitter feelings, and Brady was in deep depression about his own mental state. Brady sat in the corner of the truck bed, his head propped in his hands, and paid no attention to her. Maybe you're just a crazy, stupid fool, she said, trying to provoke him. Oh, yeah? he shouted as he got up in the moving truck. He had a suicidal lunacy in his eyes that she had probably never seen before. He began to shout. You think I'm crazy? His grip on her and reality grew weak as he fell in the metal bed of the truck. And then he rose above the truck. He could see the whole city, from Quake Tower to Telegraph Hill, the Golden Gate, Point Bonita to his right, and the Blue Pacific beyond. Inevitably, he was propelled into the void. He retreated, secure in his nothingness. No one could harm him here, and no one could reach him. The frustration of the world was far behind him. And he knew in moments he would be in a weightless beam of green light. Mr. Hank, where are we? asked the boy as he floated near the rider. Boy, you're asking me, he said as the sensation of gravity slowly reappeared. They came to rest on a smooth platform. It was entirely reflective, as were the surrounding cylindrical walls. The green light had slowly dissipated and the boy stood. Hank got to his feet and wiped the dust from his clothes. He gazed around the room, his eyes squinting in disbelief as the boy ran his fingers along the wall. I can see myself, said the boy as he turned from his own reflection to Hank. Think you're gonna see God Almighty, boy. You mean we're dead, Mr. Hank? Well, what the hell else could it be? The answer to his question was forthcoming. In a smooth motion, the walls of the cylinder began to move upward, revealing a white outer wall and an opening to a front room. Standing in the room, its walls filled with green corrugated holes, were five non-human creatures, studying the humans as if they had just stolen the neighbor's dog. The boy moved back next to Hank to observe the creatures. They had a deep pink skin and short blue hair, a soft texture like human hair, covered the top of their slightly larger than human heads. Unlike a human's face, the skull moved inward from the temples into two wide and connecting eyebrows, leaving a patch of wrinkled pink forehead above. Their eyes were larger than human eyes, two black spheres with a whiter human-like area. An extremely wide nose sloped downward like a man's nose, but was more like a pug nose. 
and only had one deep nostril. One of them seemed to be arguing with his peer, but turned quickly and smiled at Hank and the boy. His teeth were oversized and connected in one plate. Jockeying his heavy set frame, he walked toward them, still smiling as not to frighten them. Whoa, we gotta be dead, boy, said the rider as he held the boy. I'm scared, Mr. Hank. Oh, so am I, boy, so am I. The creature, dressed in human-like clothing, moved closer. He wore a V-necked aqua jersey with an orange outer turtleneck garment. There were gold stripes on the orange jersey, perhaps designating a rank, as he had more stripes than the others. He neared them, extended his hand, and they gawked at his features. His elbow joint distorted as if it had been in a train wreck. His hand was similar to a human hand. Like everything else, it seemed oversized by human standards, and had two thumbs on either side, two index fingers and two maneuvering fingers. Black fingernails covered the top of the fingers all the way down to the first joint. In all, it was a very unsettling sight. The creature turned and called out to the other creatures. Cratchin blacker stare un Goran. Goran. Another one of them came running down with a small device looking like a music box and gave it to him. The creature made a slight adjustment and slid it across the reflective floor. Jim Tivik Horta Stenum. Stenum he said, and then in English, they heard his words coming from the device. It sounded very tinny. Please pick up the translator, please. Stay away, boy, stay away, said the rider as he moved forward, his eyes constantly gauging the creature's every move. He bent over and picked up the box. It's quite all right, said the creature. You're holding a device that will allow us to talk to you, he said, smiling broadly. Please, let me apologize for the way that we have abducted you from the desert to our ship. I take full responsibility for what happened on your planet tonight. This don't look like no ship I've ever been on, said Hank as he looked at the device. No, I imagine it does not. Do you have names? My name is Hank Brady and this here is Jim Folsom. My name is Grok. I am the commander of the ship. Okay, said Hank. So, this is your ship. Don't look like no ship. But if you say so, it's a ship. <laughs> Just where the hell are you from there, Mr. Grok? I am from the planet Mergendorf. This ship left the perimeter defenses on a purely reconnaissance mission to Norilon, Earth. You see, the elders of Moraine have deemed their guardianship of your planet necessary. We are your guardians. Guardians from who? asked the boy. From those who would interfere with the actual flowing of the history of any planet. What does that mean? asked Hank. You'll kindly step into the receiving area. I'll be more than happy to answer all your questions, Grok told them. Come on, Mr. Hank, said the boy as he walked into the receiving area. The dusty cowboy, reluctant to modify his own simple lifestyle, stepped from the reflective platform. He found himself staring at the creatures. Okay, Mr. Grack, here I am. Good. Before we leave, I will answer your question. Your actual flooring in history is the normal progression of life on a planet without any interference from outside life forms. We do not want to exert any outside influence on your planet's civilization, nor do we allow things to change as they are. It is against all that we Mergendorf hold sacred. That is why we call ourselves the Guardians of Earth. What you 
saw below was an example of this. A warlike race called the Renegades, from what you call the Antares system, has sent a fleet of ten ships to Neuralon. He said as the panel opened up in front of them. If you will please come with us, we'll get into the chute. Shoot? Who are you going to shoot? My rifle's back on my horse. If you don't... No, shoot, Hank. Shoot. Said Grok as he pointed ahead. This will bring us very comfortably to the excursion tunnel. Then we will enter station number six entrance, which is inside the mountain hit by the Renegades. The Mergendoffs entered the bullet-shaped room, followed by the boy. The skeptical rider of the rangers, carrying the translated device, shuffled forward. Renegades, they came to kill us, they did? Asked Hank as the room sealed shut. This room was bathed in blue light as they now descended down the ship. We have been persuaded to think so, Hank. Nine of their ships were confronted in deep space, well outside the boundaries of your own solar system. I'm sorry, this is my adjutant, Dwarf Paris, said Grok. You're telling us that people live out in the stars? asked Hank. Of course, life abounds. Not all of it is intelligent life, and it varies in physical structure and culture. But there is life, explained Grok. When it is intelligent, it is similar in reasoning ability and innate intelligence. Or lack in some cases, said Paris. Grok returned the smile of his adjutant, reflecting their close relationship. That's right, Paris. The Renegades have shown a remarkable lack of intelligence as of late, said Grok. The mustached Hank, the dirty-faced rider, was not laughing. He still felt unusually worried. Just what are you going to do with us? he asked Grok. All very simple procedure. We use it to enforce the Valerian law among the dwarfs. Both of your memories of the past few hours will be altered and replaced with a new concept of your journey. It will make it suitable for you to continue your lives unobstructed, said Grok. Now, whatever you say, said Hank. Just get me back to the range. Shit, I don't want to remember any of this. A series of melodic tones sounded in rapid succession as the room came to a stop. chute opened and they walked into what looked like another receiving area with green corrugated walls. Grok pushed several buttons on the wall and it slid open. Side by sides, these humans and the Mergendorfs ambled into a long tunnel leading to the outside of the ship of station number six. What's out there? asked the boy. This is the docking facility of station number six, said Grok as he walked ahead of them. Six? asked the rider as they emerged into the carved-out innards of the mountain. We have six stations around your planet. They provide us with the data concerning your civilization without any interference. We have hundreds of scientists in these stations, studying a wide variety of earthly functions from social structure to archaeology. Hank shook his head as he looked at the prodigious Mergendorf ship set in the sculptured interior. Just get me that memory machine there, Mr. Grok. I don't want to know any more of this. Other, more slender Mergendorf, five or six inches taller than Grok, were evident in this portion of the station. They had the same short blue hair and brow line, but their features were longer and streamlined. Are they Mergendorf? asked the boy. 
Most assuredly they are, Mergendorf, Jim. Smiled Grok as he looked at his adjutant. They are females, the Edorf. I ain't seen no woman like that since El Paso back in 67, <laughs> laughed Hank. Grok tried to appreciate the amusement. He half smiled as he pointed to the tall gold door and the rock across the station. Over there is the station chute, said Grok as they crossed the docking area. Is that station far from here? Ten of your minutes, Hank Brady. Five hundred miles below your planet. Five hundred miles below the planet? How do you know my name? We know everything about you. The scene was fading for Bill Brady. He crossed into the void, this time with a new sense of being, enlivened by the discovery of the writer's identity. A man called Brady. A man that could very well be his ancestor. Join us next week as a noble experiment by Robert P. Fitton continues. This has been a production of Fitton Theatre of the Words.